Okay, good afternoon, church. Uh, apologies on the technical difficulties that we <laughs> Just making sure everything's working again. Uh, hopefully the stream is working now, so those of you who are at home or wherever you may be can um, tune in there. Uh, for those of you here, welcome, and uh, it's great to see you in church. Uh, hopefully in two weeks when uh, the limitations here in Ontario begin to lift, and gather more people, but thankful for those of you who are here. Uh, let's go into the Word today. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and of course last week we looked at the first six verses of chapter 11, or at least verses 2 to 6, I should say, um, that of course spoke on a matter that is quite important for us to understand, and after laying the grounds on that particular argumentation from Paul, we now read the rest of that argument. So as I told you last week, I had to divide the sermon up into two parts because there's just so much content, so long. Even today, uh, a lot of the stuff I'm going to share with you is quite an abbreviation of the totality of all the things that I would like to share with you. Uh, maybe in the future we could do something a little bit more in-depth on 1 Corinthians, this particular section of the text, so you can get a full understanding of where all of these conclusions are drawn from. But let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 16. So if you have a Bible, you should uh, open it up. And let's read verses 7 to 16 of the 11th chapter. So this is the rest of Paul's argument on the matter of head coverings for women. And he's going to now appeal to, it's divided into two sections. He's going to appeal firstly to creation, and then secondly, from what he calls nature. Let's read together 7 to 16. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, man independent of woman, Whereas the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even uh, nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? Or her hair is given to her for a covering? But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Man, this is the word of God. Uh, and you know, I'm sure upon reading it, you know, it's not really a text that, you know, pastors are frequent to preach on or eager to preach on. But I am eager to preach on it because I think it's fascinating. So uh, we're get, we'll get into that. Let's uh, get into prayer. Let's pray before we begin. I want to uh, share with you the Unreached People Group of the Day. They come from our brothers and sisters down south, United States of America. <laughs> it's the first time I think we've prayed for a people group in the U.S. Uh, we've prayed for the U.S., of course, <laughs> numerous times. Uh, but they are the Hindi. The Hindi is an entire people group in the United States. And, of course, they're locally here in Canada, in Ontario, and GTA as well. There are about 1.15 million Hindi people in the United States. And they're scattered across the entire country. <laughs> And there's only 1% uh, of this population is Christian. So they are an unreached people group very close to us down south. Of course, the name suggests they are Hindus. And so we'd like to pray for them as they are uh, 
non-rich people group. So pray for them. And of course, the U.S. is flourished and blessed with many, many churches and opportunities for them to hear the gospel. So there's no reason why a Christian neighbor could not share the gospel with them. So we'll definitely pray for that. In terms of the world, I don't know if you're keeping up with what's happening in Europe and in the EU, but there's some border dispute and potential war uh, on the border of Ukraine and Russia. And uh, it's territory, if you're familiar with the history of it, uh, you know, Soviet Union stuff, etc. Uh, it's quite disputed land and territory. Uh, armies and forces are gathering on this border as we speak. And uh, it's very, very, like, tensions are high right now. Um, the report this morning is the EU is expecting potentially uh, the first war in decades in Europe, right? Uh, last, thing, last war, I think, or active war was like in Yugoslavia or something like that. So obviously not something we want to hear. We want to pray for peace and well-being and hopefully talks that lead to resolution. Uh, but of course, with these issues and these political matters, it's never certain what the outcome will be. We're praying for Europe. Well, being there, praying for peaceful conversations and resolution to the situation um, in another part of the world. Very familiar to us. All right, let's pray. Let's begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of its teaching, the gift of its insight. We ask, O oh Lord, faithful in consuming that which you have prepared for us today. God, we also ask uh, for the Hindi of, in, of the United States. That entire people group, the population, over a million people, live across uh, the United States, that they would come to know Jesus, Lord, that they would hear the good news. So many churches in the States, so we ask that uh, there would be faithful men and women down south who will uh, reach out to neighbor and share this good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, save. And so, Father, we ask uh, that the entire contingency of this group would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. We also pray, Lord Father, this day for Europe and what's happening over there, especially in the Ukraine uh, and Russian border. We pray for peace. We pray, hopefully, not for war, uh, but for resolution. Uh, you know, we live in a time, tensions are high, and so we ask, oh Lord, for political leadership of these nations uh, and on this continent, that it would not lead to death or war or any of those things, but rather something that is peaceful in nature. We thank you, Father. Ask all this in your name. Okay, so our sermon today is entitled Let Creation and Nature Speak. So, of course, the title just you know, encompasses uh, the two sections of the text we've read. Okay, before I continue, if you have not read or if you have not listened to what we discussed last week in regards to chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, this is going to be really confusing to you and it's not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, so if you haven't done that, it doesn't mean pause and, you know, <laughs> go and read that. But after hearing what you hear today, make sure you read or hear that as well. Because the two really need to be together. Right? So if you're missing last week and what we discussed in verses 2 to 6, um, you're missing a huge component of what we're reading today. So I'm going to assume you have some understanding of what we discussed last week. We go into what we're discussing this week. Let me sum it up for you, though. We have already undertaken extensive time into the first six verses of chapter 11. I explained to you last week the reason is because the topic is a sensitive matter. And so I wanted to properly convey what is found in the text as it relates to us today. In those opening verses, 
we examined the nature and key elements of Paul's argument. We saw Paul, uh, we saw Paul's admoni- admonition to the Corinthians for their keeping of tradition. But at the same time, he argued against a certain tradition that wasn't being kept. Some women in the church were attending public gatherings of believers in corporate worship with their heads uncovered. Whoa, right? Like back then, apparently it was a big deal. To us, not so much. As I look around the room, women come to church regularly with their heads uncovered. In fact, right, we have only one woman in this room who has her head covered at the moment, right? So uh, there's only one a person who adheres to Paul's teaching, apparently. So what is the case here, right? Um, so he argues against this. And I explained culturally at the time why this act right could have been an issue and how it connects to the honor shame culture of the greco-roman world that paul lived in his thrust was that they ought to cover their heads that was his argument let her cover her head right and we talked about why that would be right we examined the nature of his argument on the grounds which he himself lays he argues from the stance of headship and we unpackage what paul meant in verse 3 saying that right We make connections between the theological principles that Paul was adhering to, yet also made the clear distinction and reality of the cultural and contextual applications that were at play at the time that Paul wrote those things. We concluded, thus, that the principles are meant to be kept, even today, that we are to honor our head and we are to conduct ourselves in every manner in consideration of bringing honor to God and to those we ought to, And I gave you the final imperative that the cultural application or what I called customs did not, did not, and do not require strict adherence today. So I don't stand here today and tell women of the church, cover your heads, right? I just don't think that's necessary. Because those practices, those customs would not mean today in our context what they meant back then and deciphering this this distinction right is critical in scripture and it's difficult to do when is this theological when is this a strict adherence when is this a custom right still on the grounds of a principle but when is the practice just simply a custom right we need to distinguish those things and that's the difficulty at times because we don't we have not lived in the greco-woman world uh because those practices again, would not mean what they they meant back then. But what is primary to our concern is applying and maintaining the principle of Paul's argument to honor God by honoring the creation order he has established and determined for all of creation. But note that Paul's argument continues onward to verse 16. Today we uh, reread verses 7 to 16 and wrap up our understanding of why this was such an issue to Paul. And how we ought to read this text properly today. So I'm going to center our entire sort of uh, most of our time here today on the first half, verses 7 to 12. Verses 13 to 16 we'll briefly speak on. But I think 7 and 12 really capture the heart of what what, what I want to convey. And I would like to have like the extra time to go into 13 to 16, but and I don't want to extend it to next week and have a third Sunday on this topic. And I certainly don't uh, want to you know, make this longer than it needs to be, right? So verses 7 to 12 is where we're going to spend most of our time today. And then I'll briefly speak on 13 to 16. 
And if you're really curious, we, you know, we can converse over lunch today and then I'll have a concluding sort of imperative for us. Okay, so that's all we're going to do and that's the end. Verses 7 to 12, two points to today's sermon. Verses 7 to 12, an argument from creation. And then the second point, an argument from nature. Verse 13 to 16. Okay, so we're spending most of our time on 7 to 12. Let's look at verse by verse, verses 7 to 12. Verse 7. The four that begins this verse here indicates Paul's intention to elaborate on his argumentative point in verse 6. Right? Let her cover her head. Women ought to wear a head covering. And here's why. Right? That's, as soon as you see the word for, that's what you should think. Oh, Paul is now going to explain why. Right? His appeal will be to creation in these verses, namely God's order in creation. And yes, God has an order in all of creation. But it is not an order of, as we mentioned last week, hierarchy, priority, uh, intrinsic value, or importance, as we established last week. But it is an order of all things in creation for the sake of what? His glory and thus the benefit of all creation. It is the way things ought to be. However, here's the interpretive struggle in verse 7. It appears that Paul wants to explain his reasoning for his direction in verse 6 for women to cover their heads in the place of public worship. And yet, this verse doesn't appear to do that at all. The verse has two parts to it. And instead of expanding on why women ought to wear head coverings, Paul states that men should not because man, apparently, is the image and glory of God. The second statement is that women is the glory of man. How this connects to verse 6 is odd and peculiar. Furthermore, how does it connect to the conclusion of this section of text? Verse 10. It is not entirely clear to us, but here are some perspectives I can offer you. In the flow of the text and the flow of the argument, it appears that Paul is relying on his readers, his listeners, and in the original audience, the Corinthian audience, to fill in some of the gaps of his argument. Right? Fill in some of the gaps in the sense that he assumes something, some knowledge on the other end. Right? Remember, he's also responding to them. So there has been a back and forth conversation. And so he's building on some of those conversations. It's not like when you have a conversation or texting with someone, or like when you have a conversation with a friend or someone you know, you build on the conversation. You don't keep referencing back to things already talked about, right? You just, when you say it, that, this, remember that, like you use these terms as variables to reference something that both of you have an understanding of. And this is where the mystery lies. We don't have that letter. And we don't have the content of those things. And we don't have the content of their entire full discussion. We're getting sort of like a snapshot of it. And thus, for us, the difficulty today is deciphering what exactly Paul is responding to and what exactly he means by some of, these ter- some of this terminology. This is obvious and apparent in both structure and in the content that is missing for us. What is missing in all these verses from, from verses 7 to 12 is any mention of what? Women being directed to cover their heads. Verse 7 to 12, there's not a single instance where Paul says, women, cover your heads, right? We, we read the text today for man, the image go up, man should not, right? Man does not, he gives creation thing. Uh, verse 10, it seems like he might be saying that women ought to have a symbol of authority. We'll talk about what that means. 
We don't have that. We don't have any of this in verses 7 to 12. So it must relate to verse 6, if that's the continual teaching of it and the continual argument. But how it relates is peculiar to us. It's, what's really the case then is it's implied. That, that, that imperative is implied, right? But that missing component is what has led to much debate and confusion over the years in biblical scholarship. The general schools of thought divide on reading this verse in this way. Men ought to not cover their heads because they are the image and glory of God. Whereas women ought to cover their heads. That's the part that's missing, right? But it's implied in the text, right? Whereas, or in, con- in contrast to women who ought to cover their heads, well, what's the reason? And that's all he gives. Because women are the glory of man. I hope you're following me here. This is a complex verse. This allows verse 10 to be rendered and read as the conclusive derivation or the derived conclusion of verse 7. Because of this, women being the glory of man, they ought to, right, have a symbol of authority on her head. But I don't think that's what verse 10 means. And we're going to get there. Okay. Therefore, women should have, some have rendered symbol of authority to mean a covering that represents a symbol of authority on their heads. But that, I think, is troublesome to read it that way because that could mean many things and it could mean something else that we don't, I don't think, Paul is getting to, right? Paul certainly teaches, you know, the authoritative uh, relationship in, in the church, right? He gives the pastorate office as well as eldership and overseer. These roles are, uh, are clearly given to males in the church, right? And there's specific reasons for that. And we'll, one day we'll study those texts and we'll get there. But I don't think that's what he's talking about in today's text. You can see why scholars agree that Paul is assuming a lot on his reader's end in these verses. Something to note in verse 7 is that although man is God's image and glory, Paul is careful not to say that woman is man's image. He removes image, right? You would assume, to be for consistency's sake, he would have written, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the image and glory of man. What's removed in that second statement? Image. Just glory, right? That's an important note. Genesis 1 and 2 imply nothing of the sort that only man, only the male gender is made in God's image. So Paul is careful to remove that point in the descriptor of woman in relation to man. What to do with this word glory then, the common denominator? Why in verse 3, right earlier in the chapter, did he use the word head? And we talked about what head means. It means source to describe these relationships. But here he changes to glory. And furthermore, the relationships ordered in verse 3 are nowhere to be found in this verse. Christ, in verse 3, is the head of man, man, head of woman. But here, we have man, the image and glory of God. Woman, the glory of man. Thanks a lot, Apostle Paul. This has confused us to death, right? It's a mystery. Let me do the homework for you. Having gone through this text rigorously, what glory does not mean, does not mean, and many have made this mistake, does not mean reflection. That man reflects God's glory. 
or that woman reflects man's glory. It does not mean that. There's no evidence of such usage of the term glory in the Bible. But what it likely does mean is that the existence of man brings honor to God. And then, of course, the existence of woman brings honor to man. As Gordon Fee writes, Paul probably means that the existence of the one brings honor and praise to the other. It follows, then, that the existence of woman brings honor to man. And Paul would not disagree at all that the existence of both genders, male and female, man and woman, brings honor to God as a summative whole, together, which is consistent, of course, with creation narrative. Judith Gundry Volv has written extensively on these verses. And listen to what she says. Paul's main point here is that men and women are both the glory of another, and therefore both have an obligation not to cause shame to their heads. Since they are the glory of different persons, they must use different means to avoid shaming their heads. But the question remains to us today, how woman is the glory of man, and how that leads to the conclusion, cover your heads. Right? This is very unclear for us at this point in the text. Let's go to verses 8 to 9. An allusion is made here, back to, Genesis, back to the Genesis creation narratives in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. These verses act in unison to ref- verses 8 to 9, act in unison to reflect the content of what you're familiar with, Genesis 2:23 and 2:18 to 20. And the goal here from Paul appears to be this: to explain why woman is man's glory. Here is Fee's excellent and precise explanation on this, and I couldn't say it any better, so I'm just going to quote him. Man by himself is not complete. He is alone, without a companion or helper suitable to him. The animals will not do. He needs one who is bone of his bone, one who is like him, but different from him, one who is uniquely his own glory. In fact, when the man in the Old Testament narrative sees the woman, he glories, that's the word that's actually used in the text, in her by bursting into song. I don't know if you've ever read the Genesis narrative this way, but Adam sees her and he goes into song. It's not obvious in the English, but in the Hebrew it is. He goes into a poetic song and he says, uh, or he, he bursts into song. She is thus man's glory because she came from man and was created for him. She is not thereby subordinate to him, but necessary for him. She exists to his honor as the one who, having come from man, is the one companion suitable to him, so that he might be, listen to this, complete, and that together they might form humanity. See, that's a quote I got to save for when you get married, right? Definitely something, I mean, if I ever get to officiate a wedding, that's a quote I got to save, right? That's extraordinary. That's great insight, not only in this text, but great insight and reflection on the Genesis narrative. A common misreading leads one of these verses to think that verses 8 to 9 indicate male superiority, male dominance over women. And that is simply not true. That's a misrendering and reading of the text. Why? There's nothing indicative in chapter 11 so far that Paul is trying to teach male authority or headship, right? The terms are there. You, you see male, female, authority, 
head. And immediately you draw lines and you make your own conclusions. You're like, oh, see, this is Paul's patriarchal male dominance mumbo jumbo old school thinking. And you actually read the text and none of that is there. His argument has nothing to do with that. He's not even talking about complementarianism per se here, right? It's just our minds are sensitive to these trigger words. And so it's simply not true to read it that way. If you read on, if you need evidence of this, read verses 11 to 12. And you can plainly see that that is not Paul's intent. His intent is to help listeners see the true creation order and relationship intended in man and woman by God. That only together, in the manner God intended, can each truly flourish as man and woman. Listen to Thistleton write on this. In other words, man can be truly man only if he can be so in relation to woman as truly woman. Vice versa, woman can be truly woman only if she can be so in relation to man as truly man. As God intended, not as we intend, but as God intends. Right? That's really critical for Christians to understand that there is a creation order, a role for each gender, and a purpose behind the design. Why design it without purpose? Clearly, there was purpose. We've already talked about all of this. Like, all of these things are you know, doctrinal truths in, this, in, in, our, in our church and in our faith. I hope, that, I hope that gets across. That's not what Paul is talking about male headship or authority his concern is not those things in this particular passage verse 10 this is the the central verse that just flips the tables and drives bible readers crazy why what in the world like this is the curveball of curveballs right like it just like jumps out at you if you just r- glance over this right i mean i've been christian you know, for quite a while now, and I've read this text probably numerous times, but when you just glance over it, you're like, oh, this is Paul, you know, da 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 you just read it, you don't really grasp the magnitude of this verse. Where in the world does this language come from? It just comes out of nowhere. Both sections of this verse are as confusing as the other. The first part, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. He changes the wording completely. Instead of just plainly saying, she ought to have a head covering. He changes the terminology. Why? So then now we have to ask, is that even what he means? And then he gives the reasoning. And you would think it would be because woman is the glory of man. Or man is the head of woman. Like he would have said something like that, right? In consistency with everything he said so far in verse 3 and verse 7. Nope. Paul says, because of the angels. <laughs> what? The angels? What angels? Where, where are these angels coming from? And why? And there's no expansion on the thought. Right? It's just angels because of the angels. Imagine I came to you and I said, oh, yeah, do this because of the angels. <laughs> like, what? Like, what does this mean? Right? He's assuming, again, so much on the other end because they've had dialogue already. I wish we had those letters. We don't have them. Let's talk about this. Verse 10. The key word here that has caused so much commotion over this verse is the Greek word exousia, translated symbol of authority. Not to mention the last part of this verse, because of the angels. We're going to address both. 
what on earth Paul means here is still, gotta concede, a point of debate. We must confess and concede as Christians that we cannot fully grasp the meaning of this verse. But we can piece together what it could mean in context. That's not to say that the lesson of the passage is lost because the mystery of this verse exists. That's not the case. We get the entire point of the text. It's just the reasoning that is confusing to us. The therefore in this verse indicates, usually, a conclusive thought. But what we get seems so far from that. Some have understood exousia to mean some kind of idiom for placing something on, right? Putting something on your head. Or to mean the authority of man's headship, right? A symbol of man's headship over you. Put it on your head, right? Of course, that immediately sounds terrible to many women. But these interpretations have many, many interpretive issues. Furthermore, some have read this to mean a new sign of authority that allows women to pray and prophesy in public, but in doing so, that they should maintain civil attire. Still problematic. Why? We don't see any lesson like this in Scripture. It is best, therefore, in my opinion, and I'm going to just strictly say it, this is my opinion on the interpretation of this text after going through multiple interpretations. Like, there are literally, like, tens if not over 20 interpretations of this like in its intricacy and application of this verse but out of standing all the, all through these things reading calvin reading luther and reading augustine and then reading more modern scholars and recent scholars and going through the history of this verse i have rested on this and this is my opinion so take it as opinion write it down don't take it as authoritative word of god right this is just me rendering the verse doing your homework again this verse alone could be its own sermon let me just break it down for you it's my personal opinion to take the literal meaning of the term so when in doubt go the, go to the literal okay so what is the literal rendering of exousia it means this freedom or right to choose right? freedom or right to choose this renders the reading like this then Women ought to have the freedom to choose what to do with what goes on their head. But that seems so peculiar, right? In the flow of the argument and everything Paul has said thus far. Why? His commendation or his imperative was for women to cover their heads. But he wants them to do so, I think, on the precise exercising of their liberty. And why does that make sense? We read chapters 8 to 10 on food sacrifice to idols. Paul commending the church to not eat this food, but do so on the rightful, wise exercising of your Christian liberty. As he does, gives the analogy, the anecdote of his own testimony. So it's my humble perspective that we are to still take this verse in that way. My perspective, you do your own research, you come to your conclusions, seek the Spirit's guidance on this verse. I think that's the proper rendering, at least for me right now. I mean, there's more data that could come in and help us interpret it better. With the data I've collected, that's where I rest right now. So I don't like to just keep myself in limbo and give you no perspective, right? I do want to give you some kind of opinion on this. 
The idea that flows then is this. Paul has been using the terms of the Corinthians all throughout this letter to tackle various different issues. He's been using the terminology. Remember Sophia? He used it in their sense, right? Remember like uh, when he addresses different crowds, he appeals to their practices, their terminologies, their culture, and then he turns the table on them saying, well, what about this? That's Paul's rhetoric. That's the way he debates on issues. This part, peculiar usage could be, I think, the same in that he is using their terminology in redefining it for them to properly apply in context. The point is this, that women are to exercise this freedom or liberty properly in light of the principles Paul has outlined, as well as with general wisdom, much in line with what we've read in chapters 8 to 10. Okay, fine. So women are to exercise their freedom and liberty, put on their heads what they want and when they want to. Paul is commending them to be wise because there are these repercussions and consequences when this is not done. In a way, he's saying, yeah, you ought to do this, but I'm not going to force you to do it. I want you to recognize why it ought to be done, and you exercise your liberty on whether you want to do that or not. Right? That's the same type of logic and argument he used in chapters 8 to 10 in regards to food sacrifice to idols. But what about this peculiar phrase, because of the angels? Does anyone have any thought on this? I would love to do a Bible study on this. Just sit down and be like, what do you guys think? Because of the angels. <laughs> like, what does this mean? It's like, this took me an hour to figure out. Again, I see here an adherence to perhaps the wrong conceptions and thoughts that were circulating in the Corinthian audience in regards to angels. Remember the eschatological women of chapter 6? They were claiming realities that were not yet, right? They were saying, oh, we've been glorified. We're free. We don't need husbands and families anymore. We're just going to you know, do our own thing. But it's not yet. Remember that concept of now and not yet? We're justified, not yet glorified. That's a reality they were claiming about themselves that was not yet. So this could be the audience that he's addressing, these eschatological women. Such things like being like that of angels. We read about this, right? That they were claiming to be like angels. And Paul's going to address spiritual gifts, you know, two Sundays from now as we get there. But speaking the language of angels, right? The gift of tongues. Paul's response then flows this way. You are angels? Then look at the angels and look at them as models for how you are to conduct yourselves before God. So what does that mean? Paul, of course, does not see them as angels, literally. He is using their perceived claims against them to further and make his point. But what does he mean to look at the angels? Well, read Isaiah 6, for example. In Isaiah 6, King Uzziah died, and then you have all this thing. And Isaiah is before the throne of God, the Holy of Holies, I mean, not Holy of Holies, the, right? He's in heaven, and he's before the Holy Throne of God, and he's before him. And, and, and an angel comes before him, and what does he do? He has six wings, right? The angel has six wings, and with two, covered his feet. Presence of God. Cover yourself. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is appropriate before 
It's a clear indication that angels who in their freedom of choice, because we know angels have free will, one fell, right? <laughs> Choose to cover themselves in the presence of the Lord. They had six wings. Two, they covered their feet. Read Isaiah 6. A posture that Paul asks, women, you ought to follow as well. Not the exact practice, but the posture that they demonstrate. Thistleton writes, Every order of created being has its way of showing reverence to God and of performing its God-given role. And the angels play their part in this. If angels are not to step over their boundaries, who are we to throw off such constraints? People are going to read this and say, well, that's not true liberty. That's not freedom, right? We really want freedom in total, like all these things. Like everyone should be able to exercise the same freedoms on every single issue and matter. It's just not the case. God has determined roles for all of us. And immediately, as soon as you hear that, you go, oh, that's a restraint. I don't want that. That doesn't make sense. That feels uncomfortable. I don't want that, right? I think athletes get this concept more than anyone else. You think of, like, the Raptors, right? We won the championship 2019. If who was a bum on that team, if Jeremy Lin was like, today I am Kawhi, right? Give me the ball. Forget Kawhi Leonard. I will be Lin Sanity tonight. I will carry us to the championship, right? He'd be kicked off the team, right? What's his role? Come in for 2.9 seconds at the end of the game and put on your arm sleeve and then get off the court. That's your rule, right? No offense, Jeremy Lin. But you weren't needed on the court. But your role was in practice, in the team meetings, in giving advice, in being a voice to maybe the younger players, right? If Kawhi Leonard, you know, just came out and he was like, eh, I'm just not going to shoot this game, right? You guys shoot the ball now, right? Probably won't win. Right? Each to play their role. If you, re- if you listen to any of the great athletes, they always tell you that. The greatest teams are the teams where each and every single player on that team understands their role. It doesn't make one player more significant than the other because you could argue you could be the greatest of the greats, but without your supporting cast, who understand their rules, what are you? Well, you're nothing. Right? You could be great statistically with no championships. I think athletes really get this concept because you understand the team concept of it. Only then can you realize. Now, of course, we look at the accolades that are given to the superstars and we immediately just give to them value and importance. That's just not the case in creation order. There's no extra importance, extra credit, extra value that's given to, for example, the male because he's the head of the household. Absolutely not. For you are nothing. In fact, you're not even complete without the woman. This has to make sense in our hearts before you can read texts like this and truly interpret them. Verses 11 to 12. The point is over, ever more clear in, the, in these verses that Paul's intent is not to pit the two genders against one another, as some have read in these verses. His focus is simply not on teaching subordination of women under men. He clearly has the correct view that there is certainly equality in both genders. Under God, right? Same intrinsic value. 
but he even appears to be affirming the authority of women over their own heads. But do not confuse this language with the two extreme schools of thought. To see this passage, or other passages like this, as evidence of the Bible teaching male domination over women. Or the other extreme, to see it as Paul's condoning of mutual exclusivity in each gender so much to do as they please without consideration of the other. We all have the same freedoms and the same everything. Equality is not sameness. Okay? That's scripture. We're equal before God in value, in importance, everything, all of that. But it doesn't mean we're the same. So you must read this text properly. Paul is fighting for the proper creation perspective. The existence of two genders, yes, only two. The rights and freedoms of each gender in light of their equality under God. A responsibility in that freedom to do work, to work together, meaning to consider each other. And finally, to not see sameness in the genders, but a beautiful design of complementary roles. God has determined to be the best method and function of each member, so as to the task of bringing honor praise and glory to god it's a difficult pill to swallow if you haven't heard this before but i believe that is the biblical teaching on the male female relation thistleton writes the very notion of self-identity depends listen to this 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 is this is a one-liner you got to write down the very notion of self-identity depends upon how we relate to others but this is a theological truth derived from how God has created humankind to reflect his own nature as his image. Finally, an argument from nature. Quickly, just a couple sentences. Verses 13 to 16. I won't go into this deeply, but if you want to, call me up and we'll discuss it for an hour. The final section of Paul's argument on this matter closes with an appeal to nature. He makes a distinction in even the length of hair. That nature has provided. The argument is simple. Men have short hair and women have long hair. See? <laughs> right? That's the argument. Thus, even nature agrees with the point that women should have their heads covered. This seems really elementary and let's just be honest, it sounds a little bit outdated and stupid, right? The argument is phrased in the form of two rhetorical questions that begin the argument, asking, what is proper? And asking, what does nature then tell you? I just want to point out a key thought here and conclude, because that's all it really requires. This is not an argument that appeals to nature in the theological sense. Okay, The rendering of this text in English misses this point. But rather, this is an appeal to what is sensed as natural in the cultural times of Paul. We can tell this. Why? Because where in the creation narrative in Scripture, or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter, do we see theological teaching of the significance made on the length of one's hair? Name another verse. <laughs> right? Like, I think the closest we can get to is like Samson. Right? Or like how some of the religious folks are not to cut the sides of their head, like males. But what does that have to do with, <laughs> like, what, how... How does, that, how does that have anything to do with what Paul is talking about here? 
There isn't. It's just, it just not, it doesn't connect. The ideas don't connect. Samson's case was unique to him, and the Deuteronomy laws are unique for the purposes that they were meant for in that, in that time. But as we know, post-Christ, those are not moral laws that we're meant to keep. They're not moral laws at all, in fact. So we don't see this type of teaching anywhere else. In fact, Paul himself doesn't quote scripture, doesn't appeal to anywhere else in the Bible. He's just making a point from what he sees as, or deemed, as normal in culture. And he's connecting it to the idea that he has. So there never is this type of teaching in scripture. And so we cannot take this argument of Paul as what we call in biblical scholarship, pedagogic or literal teaching to be adhered to. But rather, he is referencing customs here. Customs of his time that feel natural to those living in that time. Doesn't mean the customs are not important because the customs are connected to honor-shame concepts. His appeal is thus to things that are normal for his culture. There is, as mentioned last week, evidence to suggest that the covering and uncovering of women's heads had significant ties to many matters in the society of Paul's time. Matters that have, like, just don't relate to us anymore. Customs and connections that just don't exist in our culture today. At least much of our culture today. If you go to East or if you go to maybe, you know, other countries or I'm not familiar with every single culture in the world, but I'm sure there are still some cultures where this could make sense, right? This custom. But I don't think it makes sense like as a universal law for the church to follow, right? Just a conclusion to wrap it all up. What then can we glean and learn from this text for us today if it is strictly cultural? That's the argument, right? Well, if this is just cultural. Why is it in the Bible and why are we learning this? Principle of seeking what brings glory to God. Right? That's how it all began, right? The end of chapter 10, do all unto the glory of God. And in turn, what does not bring glory to God? I may be called old school for this, but I think attire matters. I think what we wear matters. I'm willing to debate on that. Again, this, this part is opinion. I think it matters. I think it sends messages. I think it can be problematic, right? When you go to a wedding, you don't want to outshine the bride. If you do, well, you're a jerk and get out, right? You want the bride to shine, right? Even the groom has to concede himself to the bride. That's who should shine there. Like, I remember, <coughs> I remember this. I remember a friend of mine telling me, like, he went to his graduation in, in like after like middle school and it was like a formal of all formals but he didn't know he didn't really under he was kind of like fobby so he didn't really understand what formal meant so he just thought it meant like clean he ended up wearing his dad's like taekwondo suit right is that appropriate is that wrong it's not wrong it's not he's not like gonna get like punished for that that's just weird right by any account right uh there are as i talked about last week different circumstances, different situations and contexts where attire, certain attire is appropriate or inappropriate. Okay? If you want to argue with me on this, let's see what you wear to your interview, to your job interviews, to your parents' funeral. What will you wear? I think attire matters. I think it sends messages. This is why when we go on retreats and stuff like that, we do have dress codes, right? I think it's appropriate for the church to teach such things where the world will not 
I think we are to apply the principle in church today. I bluntly say it because, well, someone has to. I don't think we should dress sexually in the church, too revealing. We should not dress to necessarily impress in the church. Doesn't mean you dress poorly, like come in like rags, right? I don't think you should dress to flaunt wealth, for example, or to draw attention to oneself. And we shouldn't really dress without, like, thoughtlessly, right? We should dress with some thought, right? To be clean and appropriate, we present ourselves before the Lord. Uh, if you're on live stream, I don't know what you're wearing. But I do want to recommend this. If you are going to join church online, dress as if you are going to church. Put yourself in attire and in a posture that demonstrates to God, I'm here to worship you. I'm here to praise you. Right? You're in your pajamas right now. You have 10 seconds to change. Right? That's just what I mean. I just think there's an appropriate, I guess, attire we could come before God. Posture that we could come before God. Now, is there some subjectivity? In the perception of one's attire, yes, there is. That's why I don't, unless it's extreme, I wouldn't really go to anyone and be like, don't wear this, don't wear that, da 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 da, right? It's, I mean, there's subjectivity to it, for sure, right? But I think there's a framework of sensibility, right? Just common sense. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about when he appeals to nature. I think mature people can determine that. Just a little bit of thought. Let's pray, reflect on what we've learned today. I know it was a lot, but I wanted to get that out to you so you can learn from this text. Uh, again, I offer it to you as I did last week. If you want the notes on this passage and the notes on this particular sermon, gladly share that with you. In fact, that's available to you every Sunday. If you want it, just let me know. Gladly send that to you. Let's take some time to pray and reflect on what we've learned and respond in song.